0: Welcome to the Red Life Podcast, a podcast about living as a socialist in this world. I'm your host, Kieran Fatima, here with my co-host, Moxie. If you like what you hear and want some bonus content, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash red life podcast. welcome back to red Life podcast my name is kieran and today we are bringing you a very special show with a very special guest please say hello to my co-host moxie Hi, buddy. and we have with us andre domis
1: how's it going hey. thank you for uh, inviting me on
0: and today we're going to be talking about uh, a cu- a few topics but mostly we're going to be focusing on the concept uh, of the ideas of Pan-Africanism, as well as uh, Andre as a writer. And we're going to be talking to him about his life as a writer and especially as a writer and a comrade. So and writing hey. for
2: social change, <laughs> making things happen through, That's right. through writing. Yeah. Nice to have you, um, Andre. We're really excited about this episode and having you on I know we both follow you on Twitter. I've followed you on Twitter for, for quite a while. I always love what you have to say. I like your analysis. So thank you. I love the <laughs> stuff you share. <laughs> um.
1: uh, so sometimes, it's, sometimes the stuff I share scares people. So, you know, when people say, like, hey, I follow you on Twitter, it's either like, oh, thank you, or I'm so sorry about that. Whatever it was <laughs> that I posted, I don't even know if I meant it.
0: <laughs> um yeah and you've uh lately it's been pretty pretty wild i mean Twitter's always pretty wild right it's like a it's like a non-stop roller coaster 24
1: <laughs> yeah. 7. yeah pretty much
0: um so uh moxie do you want to um oh uh first of all andre if you have a video we were going to share we couldn't get our share screen to work so andre has uh offered to share it
1: with us uh if you could uh go ahead andre. sure all right just hang on for one second Yeah, so
2: as Andre's getting the video ready. I'll just give you a little bit of a um, a snippet on what this video is about. It's uh, Kwame Turi, who is a Pan-Africanist socialist. And um, this is a part of a five minute lecture that he gave. I think it was in Colorado, if I'm not mistaken. But he just puts things so well. And um, I I really like listening to his lectures in particular this past week. So we thought we'd share this video to kind of kick off our conversation today.
1: All right, all right.
3: Pan-Africanism must come from the bottom up, from the masses of the people up. It is here then that we've come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the fifth Pan-African Congress, they called for mass organizations and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The conventional people's party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa, you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. It's Chimpa, chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all of Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the united states mass movements sprang up so the call was heeded for mass confrontation of course the fifth pan-african congress made two definite and precise resolutions which i want to uh, highlight of course pan-africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial from the very beginning it was anti-colonial it was weak so when they came they didn't say to the queen we're going to put you out of the country they said you must treat the natives right you must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they're anti-colonial, in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, Anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism, because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot and aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. Yes. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist then you must be socialist capitalism cannot unite Africa Africa has to be united by socialism now there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism just recently a young man said to me but socialism died I said it did he said you didn't hear about it I said I missed a funeral <laughs> of course he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East you must not let capitalism confuse your thinking This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking. I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear, it cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I say judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? (laughs) 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 So we must not be confused here. Socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal. No system does. The person who betrays themselves goes to the mud, but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on. If a system fell because of betrayal, Christianity would have been finished with Judas. At least Judas had the dignity to hang himself. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking and picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system, and there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say, please, please summarize that we might have. No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my t- I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry. Maybe I'm off. That's what I'm talking about. watching my clock. I'm a responsible. I'm a revolutionary. I I'm
2: a responsible revolutionary. <laughs> like
3: I can say it in two words Black power. <laughs> and today we've gone to one Pan Africanism. Yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system, there's no need to discuss it. Certainly, anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism, and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'd be the most powerful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Of course. Of course, and me, all I want is power. (laughs) I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> nice. Thank you. Awesome, Thanks. Andre. Thanks for sharing it.
2: Thanks for helping um, us out with that tech stuff. We're on a we're on a new <laughs> a, a, a new platform. We're streaming from a new platform right now. So, and we literally like just started it. Karen's like, okay, we're going to stream through this today, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> ooh, ooh, okay. All right. Sure. Um, yeah. So, so Kwame. He's, Kwame. Um, yeah. 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 Well, mean, he's, he's one
0: of the people that I mean, I did a little bit of research and Moxie, I know you did a little bit of research. We did some reading this week, because besides whatever we might have read before on pan Africanism. So um, a lot of people are interested in this topic, actually, Andre, when we uh, announced the video, this uh, live stream. That was one of the things Mm -hmm. that, and the writing issue is, uh, are both things I think that a lot of people have shown an interest in. So, what would you say? You know, uh, what uh, what are what are some things that you would share about Pan Africanism with your audience?
1: Oh wow! Um, And you have to understand, yeah, I'm a student of Pan Africanism. I'm not an expert in Pan Africanism by any stretch. Like I'm, I'm learning just like everybody else. But if I could sort of uh, put it down in simple terms. You know, people think that Pan-Africanism means that, you know, all people of African descent are the same, that there's like nothing that differentiates us. And Pan-Africanism does not and has never proposed such. What it does propose is that we can form a strong unity of nations, because Pan-Africanism does recognize that. I mean, that's where the Pan and Pan-Africanism come from. It's, it's a, a cross. African nations, and the idea being that the only way that we can um, willfully resist uh, European hegemony, the way that we can resist the power of, of Western capitalist nations and colonialist nations, is if we band our strings together. Africa is a supremely rich continent. People have this idea of Africa and Africans as being, like, first of all, with uh, you know our history beginning with colonialism, and that Africa is a poor continent. And I i mean, there's nothing that could disabuse you of that notion further than the fact that, for example, you know, France doesn't own gold mines, but it has gold reserves. You know, uh, yeah, the Coltan doesn't exist on in any other continent except for South America. In South America, uh, the Coltan mines are mostly owned by Bolivia. And yet everybody has a cell phone. You know, these things are located in Africa. Africa is the beating heart of planet Earth. It is the world's breadbasket. And the you know the 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 horn of plenty that is Africa has been so hyper exploited for hundreds of years, and yet it still has so many fruits yet to bear. Uh, people think of you know uh, Africa as being you know uh, uh, so exploited that it's 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 no longer capable of producing. Uh, Uh, whether it's agricultural wealth or natural resource wealth on its own. And meanwhile, it's being exploited by the entire rest of the world. Uh, This idea that, you know, that, that, uh, that, that African people are not going to be able to feed themselves within a couple of generations, if they don't uh, practice uh, proper and responsible family planning, et cetera, pinning the responsibility of, you know, keeping the earth's population under control on the most exploited people on the face of the planet, people with the highest uh, infant mortality rates with the lowest, uh, uh, with the lowest life expectancies, et cetera. And yet, Africa can feed itself two times over and have enough left over for the rest of the world. And the reason that it exists in this current state is not because of any sort of, uh, you know, atypical uh, social dysfunction on the part of African nations, but because of the deliberate carving up and exploitation um, by, for the most part, European nations. And what Pan-Africanism proposes is that, you know, within uh, people who are Africans on the African continent and people who are part of the African diaspora, if we link up our knowledge, our resources, our education, and our willingness to persevere, that we can make Africa a rich continent with a rich people.
2: Yeah, um, that's basically
0: uh, yeah what I what I also read. And there are there are different schools of thought, right? There are different yeah. um, there are variations within Pan African thought, and obviously, like in any other school of thought. There are different thinkers, different, um, different, uh, ways of kind of approaching the topic. But I, yeah, I mean, what about you, Moxie? Do you have any thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I do think that there's a lot of schools of thought and I, and I'm going back to the video that we just played too, where, um, you know, Kwame was essentially saying like, you have, you have an idea, you have this ideology or a way of living or, or, or a way of, of approaching your values. This is what I, I'm getting out of it. Um, and, just like with critiquing with critiquing you don't critique socialism you 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 critique the people that kind of implement it or whatever right but the idea itself is is a really stand up idea and i think the same could be said for even the different um, I um ideological sex of pan-Africanism, at least from what I'm gathering, because I'm still a student as well, Andre, <laughs> and I'm still learning. And that's one of the reasons why I was super excited about having this discussion today. Um, but even within within those, the framework of Pan-Africanism and Pan-African philosophy and thought, there's still a lot of um a lot of nuanced debate. That's really important stuff, right? But for and and please jump in here because My kind of core understanding at least so far about pan-Africanism is that for one you cannot be a pan-Africanist if you're not African or 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 from the diaspora in some way correct Um, so that's one thought that seems to go across a few a few lines of, Mm -hmm. of, of thinking and and another one is that, of course, you can support Pan-Africanism, regardless of who you are, though. You can support that because it's, it's about people's liberation at the end of the day. So I guess mm. what I'm trying to do is that um, I sort of am taking out a lot of ideas from Pan-Africanism as a, as a white-coated uh, woman who grew up in the West and looking at it going, okay, how, how in my mind can I sort of understand this to support this, right, to support right. black liberation aspects of this and and what it means and from a marxist perspective i look at it as like you know people have the right to self-determination and people have the right to um to to like sovereignty sovereign nations in a sense right so i don't know like if that would be what your thoughts are on that or if that would be somewhat
1: I mean that's that's what the the that's what the heart of Pan Africanism proposes. You know that's yeah. if you know if that's that's what uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and Harry Sylvester Williams and Marcus Garvey, uh, who who was probably like the most uh, you know fiery and you know uh, well recognized and possibly the most well organized Pan Africanist in history. Uh, Marcus Garvey, you know, <laughs> was a had some interesting politics, but you know b- behind the message of you know up you mighty people was able to, I think, uh, do more for pan-African organizing than possibly anyone before or since. And the idea being that, and let's not get it wrong, it is an inherently nationalistic form of politics. So it is a form of politics for African and African-descended people. It's a politics for continental Africans, for new Africans, etc. cetera. Uh, but I think what scares people about um, African nationalism in a way is that uh, there's this idea that, like, if you allow Africans the self determination that they're asking for, they'll probably do to us what we did to them. I think that, like, lies at the heart of the European psyche. There's actually a, a really good book by uh, a lady named, or a lady, uh, a scholar, a well educated scholar. When I say a lady, it's just somebody that I really look up to, um, Dr. Marimba Ani, uh, that explains. Uh, there's, you know, sort of like There's she, she, she sets up like a dialectical mode of, of critique between uh, European thought and African-centered thought. And, you know, the, the European mode of thought uh, sort of posits that, you know, the way that uh, European thinking constructs and perceives the world, like the ontological mode of thinking that is inherent to European thought is that there's a the self and there's the other. And there's, this, there's always this uh, this, this friction, this tension between the self, the interest of the self, the interest of the other, you know, the uh, consciousness of the self, the consciousness of the other. And this is what leads to like this, this competitive mode of thinking, but also this competitive mode of production, this competitive mode of social relations. Whereas with African-centered thought, it's, it's entirely centered around unity and togetherness. And I think that's kind of where, um, that's sort of the wellspring of pan-African-centered thought. Uh, this idea that, in African people would like uh, seek revenge on the Europeans or something like that. You know, it, it's just never, that's just not something that we ever really think about. What we think about is the ability to determine our own future, the ability to, to shape and choose our own destiny. And this has been attempted multiple times, you know, with the, uh, the organization for African unity, uh, which uh, eventually was dissolved and became the African union. The idea being that we, that uh, Africa would have something remotely approximating what the European union turned out to be right now, of course, with the European union, it was set up to, you know, uh, solve the the problem of disputes for land resources and trade among European nations. And yet the dispute for land resources and trade among African nations hasn't been solved yet. And that's actually one of the reasons why, uh, you know, there's a stereotype that Africa cannot feed itself, for example. Well, one of the biggest problems, uh, within continental Africa, are two of the biggest problems actually are that are, are one the artificial trade barrier set up by states that were created by Europeans in the first place. You know the the state lines that that uh, that divide uh, the African continent are artificial lines that were imposed by European colonists. That's the same lines more or less uh, that divided up European territory that, that that divides up European interests at the time that they were colonizing Africa. But then the second thing is that. The uh, roads do not lead from resources to the people. So half of uh, all crops that are produced on the continent spoil before they get to market. Why? Because the infrastructure simply doesn't exist for many states. So I I say all this to say if there there was an existing Pan-African unity, then resources would go towards the continent to help make it Like I say, the true breadbasket of the world, and then in 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 response to that, then people who are of the diaspora are essentially welcome to partake in these fruits. All together un- under under uh, one unified structure. And that is no different than say, you know, having an EU passport, being able to travel freely between EU countries, trade happening between EU countries, etc. I don't think that's a heck of a lot to ask for, you know, the EU is an inherently nationalistic project. And so w- so too is the pan African project. But the EU is uh, in a sense has set itself up as the global or as, as as one of the global hegemons so it's an inherently violent project because the eu is predicated on the exploitation of the global south whereas a uh, you know a true organization for african unity a true african union a true united states of africa doesn't have a need to exploit because there are different dialectical modes of thinking. That are inherent to African thought that simply don't exist elsewhere. For example, you know uh, Kwame Ture did say that there's you know two modes of uh, economic production and social relations. There's capitalism and socialism, which may be true I think as far as as economic relations go. But then there there's one thing that he didn't mention, which I I think he rather should have, which is Mbongi. and that's that is the African centered mode of dialectical thinking. The way that we can arrive at truths through African-centered modes of thinking, I think that's that's really important uh, to put out there. Is that you know African thought doesn't have to necessarily be patterned on European thought. I, I'm a heavy believer in in uh, socialism. Anyway, I'm a communist myself, of course I am, right? But that's not to say that all of our uh, modes of social relations and our, our ontological modes have to have European. Uh, centered thinking mapped over them in order for them to make sense. If you read a book um, and some people, are, you know, like this book and some people don't because it is sort of like uh, patterned on the kibbutz model. But if you read a book by Ujama. Um, by the former president of Tanzania, Julius K. Nyerere. One thing that he does point out is that we didn't need Europeans to teach us what socialism is. You know, African socialism has always existed. I don't know if socialism is maybe the right way to put it. I would say that Mungi has always existed. But the point he's trying to make is that there's always been a mode of social relations where the people who can work, work, and the people who can't work are provided for. And as long as you can work, you contribute to the rest of society and society will contribute to you. And th- at the time that you can't contribute to society in the mode of social production that is necessary to create like, you know, well, broad economic prosperity, then you are going to be provided for by your people We're, we're one community. And I, I think that's, that's not really a lot to ask for. And I don't think that should be scary to anyone. Yeah. I'm so yeah. glad
2: you brought that stuff up too, because like, there's so much in what, what, what you just said, like about the concept of hyper individualism that you know the european centric thought around individualistic thinking because you know you you divide a bunch of people up you're going to have a lot easier time colonizing them and um you know putting them into a a place where they're easily more exploited um including the you know the resources of the land that that we're living on right Mm -hmm. um and i think that inherently a lot of like indigenous cultures and um as well as african cultures community was core it was like in the core concept of like it was like looking after each other being um you know uh, working with the land working with what you had around you and being one with that to make sure that it's sustainable and i think that kept coming into my head as you were talking andre about like the idea of sustainability right Mm -hmm. for instance and Africa can completely be <laughs> self-sustainable.
1: Absolutely, it, it can absolutely sustain itself. <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: The thing, the thing that you know what actually shocked uh, you know uh, the the Portuguese, the Dutch, and the British is that uh, you know when when they would visit um, one when they would visit one village or one kingdom, right? There was no like there was there wasn't a tension that existed between neighboring uh, kingdoms, villages, et cetera. Why? Because they were, for the most part, related to each other. See what happens is, you know, uh, a- after a fashion, when uh, younger people in a uh, village or municipality or kingdom, etc., decide that they want to go off and develop their own land, their own community, etc., they go and you know you you have many examples for ex- like of of people who live on the westernmost part of the continent uh that venture towards the center of the continent and there's a connection of familiar relationships that chain them all together so there's not to say that you know warfare and conflict didn't exist it absolutely did there's you know uh, there's Multitude of examples of this over the course of hundreds of years, but the point is that you know what you would call, for example, the uh, the Songhai Empire, what you would call the Malian Empire, et cetera, the uh, uh, you know the uh, the Beninese Empire. It wasn't just you know one uh, autocrat or monarch that was able to extend the territory over hundreds of miles and take up resources. What it was was a network of families and a network of people uh, that were interrelated in some form or fashion that considered each other kin and considered each other community. And that I think was just so strange to Europeans when they encountered it because there's just so much land and resources available. There's just so much space available that it's like, what is the point of engaging in conflict over any of this? No, no, no. I'm going to take my family. I'm going to take my people. I'm going to move, let's say, you know, a few dozen miles away, possibly a hundred miles away. I'm going to go and, and develop my own community and you know what happens if anything happens to your community? If uh drought or flood or any sort of disaster strikes, you, you can you can come and stay with us. Because there's just so much there's just so much available, there's so much abundance available. And I don't want to make it seem like a utopia, you know, by any stretch, but this is something that I, I guess like confused and perplexed Europeans, and which is why they ended up having to draw these these state lines and that ends up dividing people against themselves because they couldn't they couldn't fathom the concept of just having no hard and fast national lines the idea of these these empires butting up against each other without this like you know this this massive degree of bloodshed but also massive degree of everything from you know from uh, poverty to pestilence to like there's the, the there is a feudal existence that resembles something to the effect of uh, uh, uh th- that resembles what the europeans are familiar with there is slavery There are serfs, there are monarchs, but the idea that all of this land and resources is not being constantly fought over and and blood is not constantly being shed over it. Well, they had to do something about that. And that's what they call the process of civilization. Uh You know, so for for me, what Pan-Africanism means to me is not simply just, you know, uniting uh, people together. It's going back to ancestral traditions Going back to the, uh, you know, the ideas, the philosophies, the ontologies that had us be able to create these broad and expansive communities together, and learn some lessons from the past, which is what Mbongi is all about, is applying the lessons from the past to to, to shape the future, and we know. For the most part, what went wrong in the past was people being divided against other people through the course of warfare, and then exploiting each other, and uh, you know, selling each other out uh, to uh, to to people that had their own capitalistic and 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 uh, hyper exploitative interests at heart. There's there's a lot we can learn from our own history. Unfortunately, I think for a lot of people, we we think that the only way that we can develop as a people is to go along with. Uh, you know these 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 imperialistic and capitalistic ideas that if we can assimilate well enough into the system, then our fair share will be broken off, and we will make what what Western imperialism lacks in terms of empathy and emotion towards Black people. We're going to be able to add that in by appealing to the morality and conscience of our oppressors, and that's just never going to happen. As you know, Kwame Ture himself said, is that you know you, you can't for you 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 can't I uh, appeal to the consciousness of people that have none and America has none. Mm-hmm. And I've never I've never been interested in that even when I considered myself like a radical liberal or whatever. I've never really been interested in appealing to the moral sense of, of the people that I consider to be my oppressor. And now that I've, you know, done a lot more homework and research and found myself way down the rabbit hole of historical and dialectical materialism, which ended up turning me into a commie. I'm even less inclined. I'm way, way, way less inclined towards that right now.
0: <laughs> what? You don't think that appealing to the people who actually have their boots on our neck is going to do anything? <laughs> I mean, come on. I'm yeah, sure they will grow a conscience and just stop doing it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> capitalism yes we can reform yes yeah Yeah, we can we
0: can make it more diverse and more pretty and more whatever and if um, we we just if
1: we just take the cronyism out of capitalism if we just yeah if we just get rid of the people if we just get rid of the malefactors you know the bad actors that are giving capitalism a bad name then hopefully we can all get along and meanwhile (laughs) but 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 it's okay you know if we decide that we're going to you know uh launch a bunch of drones to strike a country halfway across the world uh on behalf of our military contractors we're going to keep doing that but that's okay you know that's that's not hyper exploitation well,
0: those are not people in other countries right it's only it's Just only numbers. out here in the colonial in the in the, yeah. in, in the colonial in europe and in the colonization
2: yeah. You know, a bunch there. of civilians
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i mean uh speaking of uh africa i mean there's like what 54 mm-hmm. out of the 56 countries have u.s military on bases yeah africa on bases and that's something that i keep an eye on and or that i that's a new story that i follow and, and but yeah they're they're not going anywhere i mean um uh, this is just p- ongoing colonialism really right like wouldn't you say like uh imperialism and colonialism the sort of Intersections that they are uh, when it comes to those concepts.
1: Well, we—I mean—we talk about post-colonialism, and there's never been a post-colonial period. You know yeah, that's, really. that's that's never happened. You know, okay. as as soon as as soon as uh, African states and nations have been able to exercise some form of self-determination, then there is a there's a push um, by the former colonizing nations to ruthlessly crush. Uh, those movements for independence. So in Burkina Faso, you know that that uh, very quickly began to make itself uh, self-determined. Uh, very quickly, organized a national movement under um, under Thomas Sankara. You know, within a uh, matter of years, it's now under the control of Blaise Compare, who sold out Thomas Sankara uh, to essentially give uh, Hand Burkina Faso back over to the French. Uh, it's the very same thing that you saw with uh, Patrice Lumumba. The reason that uh, you know the the, the the Congo has been in a state of dysfunction for so many decades is because as soon as uh, the possibility of self determination existed. And that the flow of goods, especially where it comes to, to rubber and uranium, uh, the possibility of that being cut off from Belgium existed. Then uh, Belgium, France, Canada, and the United States got together to make sure that uh, producer Lumumba would not survive to see the end of his term. As a matter of fact, it wouldn't survive to see the end of the year. You know, uh, there's, there's just a multitude of examples of this. Same thing, same exact thing happened with Libya. You know, we hear, we heard about Gaddafi being this, this crazy dictator and Gaddafi, uh, you know, executing people summarily, even in the course of an uprising along with the Arab spring, which was also a CIA manufactured, uh, a a group of color revolutions uh, that, uh, you know, he was handing out Viagra to his troops to go out and commit mass rapes. And we know that that was also a complete hoax. That was one that was passed on by uh, Susan Rice and Samantha powers and, uh, or Samantha power, um, the, 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 the end result of the invasion and destruction of Libya is that, uh, it's now essentially, uh, a, a, a gigantic slave market is no longer safe for black people. Whereas, you know, and, and it's like, you, you talk about these things and people think that you're just like out to lunch, that you're just like, uh, you know, on some, some conspiracy theory stuff. But the, the issue uh, with Western liberalism is that you never have to do any homework or any, uh, thinking for yourself. You simply, you lazily consume everything that you see. So you listen to NPR, you read the New York times, you turn on the TV and you watch CNN and you think that that's all there is to the world as if there's never any, um, motive or agenda to make sure that countries in the global South stay underneath the boot of Western imperialism. And, you know, what, what brought me to Pan-Africanism in the first place wasn't any sort of like lofty ideas about independence or politics or whatever. It was when my mother gave me a book of Marcus Garvey's selected writings. And I hadn't—I wasn't even like 13 years old back then. You know, my, my family are a bunch of Garveyists, right? We, we very much believe in self-determination for, uh, for African people. I was sent to a, a school on Saturday mornings where I learned about Kwame Nkrumah, where I learned about... Uh, Thomas N. Carr, where I learned about Marcus Garvey, etc. Because it was important, it, this was the school was called Higher Marks, and it still exists, by the way. Uh, it used to be oh. like right in downtown. Oh, yeah, yeah. It used to be downtown Toronto, um, out by uh, Bathurst Station, like out by Bloor and Bathurst, and now oh. it exists over in Scarborough. Yeah, and it was run by uh, a principal by the name of Donald Blake. And uh, what it was what Donald Blake was interested in was making sure that black students not only were able to increase their, their grades in school, but also had a sense of pride and a sense of history. So I hated this because it meant that on Saturday mornings, I wasn't able to watch Power Rangers and X-Men. I couldn't, I had to, I had to program my mom's old ass VCR to record X-Men so that when I came back from school at like one o'clock in the afternoon, I could catch up on all the Saturday morning cartoons that I missed. But I also picked up knowledge about, my ancestors about my heroes i had i had a knowledge of self and that's always existed um but I, I don't think it actually really clicked for me until like well into my 30s when i received like a first-hand political education and understood that like there is simply no reforming the system there's no getting along with these kinds of people there's there's only ever going to be a struggle and a conflict against a, a capitalist oppression against imperialist oppression. And rather than try to fool myself in thinking that anything can be quote unquote changed from the inside, it's we simply have to tear the system down and, and replace it with one that actually uh, that, that works for people and doesn't work for a few.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So um, what would you, um? thanks. That's great. That's, I just, I can just picture you just like, rebelling like, like wanting to watch your cartoons in the morning
1: <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to wake up in the morning and go watch cartoons and I, I, I couldn't get any peace no i was i was i had to get up i had to get up at like 7 30 in the morning on saturdays on saturdays oh. and then go get on go get on the mississauga transit to islington station and then take the subway from islington to oh. bathurst get out of that station in the cold and the, it was always cold as hell too even in the summertime it was flipping cold and going to this classroom that wasn't well heated, by the way, I still had my coat and boots on and everything while we're in this classroom. And we're doing our, you know, we're doing our maths and our, aris- our arithmetic and everything else. But we did math for the first half. And then we did uh, English and history for the second half. And it was that second half that actually interested me the most. I Like, I hate math, even though I got into the financial industry and everything. And I'm, I'm great with math. I still f- freaking hate it. Uh, but the English and the history part always fascinated me because we didn't read anyone except Black authors. We only ever read yeah. African authors, and only ever read African stories. And I, I think that that's
2: in, in the mainstream, you know, sort of yeah. whitewashed school system, right? In the education mm-hmm. system that is in Western Canada and colonial countries. All the way like,
1: through, in- all the way university, I never learned a quarter of what I learned in that classroom at wow. Higher Marks. All the way through university, yeah. Wow. What's yeah.
2: the name of the school? Are you like, are you able to say the name of the
1: school? It's called Hi- Higher Marks. Higher Marks. Yeah, and every so often the school runs into some. Yeah, every so often we have to do fundraisers for it in the community because it runs in danger of of not getting enough funding. Um, and the, the unfortunate thing is, and I think I think what happened with the uh, the Afrocentric schools is that um, people thought, oh well, we have Afrocentric schools, so what's the use for higher marks? But even the Afrocentric schools aren't teaching the kind of history. It I think where the Afrocentric schools go a little bit wrong is trying to teach a black Canadian history, like a, a, an assimilation, assimilationist mode of history that shows that we do belong in the story of Canada, of North America, et cetera, that we do contribute to, you know, the uh, the, the the broader wealth and prosperity of these nations. And that's just not the way that we did schooling at higher marks. It was a completely, uh, I would say, like, Afro-cent- like a true Afrocentric mode of historical materialism, like talking about, you know, what our contributions to history uh, were, but those contributions not existing in the simply North American context, but how like African descended people like develop and maintain their own system of social relations. And that I was really young when I was, when I read conscientious for the first time, I hardly even knew what I was reading. And now I look back and I'm like, Holy smokes, these people were putting me up on some game. Like, it's just, <laughs> knowledge yeah uh
0: what would you say to um you know a black youth that might be watching or might watch this like what what would you say to people who are african who are of african descent uh who may be curious about pan-africanism or about some of you know who are growing up in this assimilationist school system and everything
1: I find that what happens when you think about like uh, when people talk about Pan Africanism, they're like, "Oh, oh, so you know, you're like one of those dudes on the corner that's like, uh, you know, telling us that uh, the black people are the real are the real Israelites, or or that you you're gonna put on a bow tie and start singing bean pies." Well, first of all, bean pies actually really taste good, so <laughs> get out of my face with that. But I uh, the um the the thing that I would really want to say to to young people is that. The kind of history that you're going to be taught is never like you should never rely on people that considered you their enemy to give you the kind of history about yourself, your own people, about your contributions to the world that you need. Uh, And Kwame Ture talks about this as well. You know, people think that what the oppressor gives you is what you're supposed to get. And that's never true. And he also says that if you really love your people, if you truly, truly love your people, you're going to want to find out everything that there is to know about your people. You know, and that uh, there's there there used to be a way of preventing people from getting knowledge, and that's banning books. But the thing is, the more you ban books, the more you want to burn books, the more you want to get rid of books. It just be, makes people curious about these books. So you know what you do the way the way that you censor African history is you just keep it in a library where nobody ever goes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so I, I I would say that if you are interested in um, Pan Africanist thought, if you are interested in Pan Africanist history. There's a couple of books that you can pick up. Uh, first is The Black Jacobins um, by C.L.R. James. And this one will teach you the history of the, uh, the Haitian Revolution and how all of that is interrelated. And then a second book, which is not a difficult read, it is a, a bit of a lengthy read, but not a hard one at all, is Walter Rodney's, um, Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. So that gives you the entire history of uh, European contact with Africa uh, European exploitation of Africa, how Africa ends up in its current state, and how that like how that uh, mode of social relations projects itself across the world. And I guess a third one that I might recommend, um, and you know, a lot of people have their thoughts about Marcus Garvey. I say that, you know, our modern mode of Pan-Africanism wouldn't have been possible without Marcus Garvey. Uh, but this one is by Marcus Garvey's uh, widow, Amy Jacques Garvey, uh, Garvey and Garveyism. I definitely would recommend you start with those three books and then move on from there.
2: Oh, thank you for that. Because that's that's something we were going to ask you is like, what do you recommend for reading, you know, for, for people that want to um, understand Pan-Africanism more, uh, for, for either young black youth or just for, for socialists, you know, people who've been always absorbed in the Eurocentric way of, of thinking, right? So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Um, the one thing that you did hit on that we're super curious about, Andre, because you have clearly had an interesting um, path into, <laughs> into your politics and, and ways of, of thinking and looking at the world. And um, I think it was Kieran who's like, I think Andre needs to be in finance. And then you mentioned it just a little while ago. So how did you go from like being in like corporate financing to looking at the world through a Pan-African? Well, you you gave us some history obviously about-
0: oh, I think uh, Andre got cut off.
2: Did we lose him? Oops.
0: Hopefully he'll be joining us soon.
2: Okay. Well, we will see about that. But let's put those books to Kieran. Um, Yeah. The books were
0: CLR James, the black Jacobins. Yep. Walter Rodney, how Europe underdeveloped Africa and Marcus Garvey, Garvey and Garveyism. Yeah. So I'm going to post a link to that, to those. Uh, well, I'll not a link, but, um,
2: and there's actually a free documentary, a couple free documentaries about the life of Marcus Garvey, um, on YouTube. Um, which is, you know, I started watching one. It's, it's, it's interesting. He's, he's a real like passionate character. There's no question about that. He's a really yeah. interesting, interesting icon.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he, I think he contributed a lot to, um, as, as Andre was saying, hopefully he'll join us back. Um, yeah. But he contributed a lot.
2: Sort of nitty gritty of, of, you know, what brought Andre to Pan-Africanism and, and, and socialism and how they intersect.
0: And you're <laughs> just about to ask him a, a really juicy question. So <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Give me I hope join us. I think he just left because I like, here they come. I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: yeah. So anyway, what are you up to these days, Moxie?
2: I'm actually quite tired lately. Believe it or not, like I cannot get enough energy. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just because it's February and we're all feeling a little burnt out from this COVID and oh, everything just feels like more work. Everything feels more exhausting. And we all, like I already know that, um, you know, when you suffer from anxiety and depression, which I do, especially in the winter, you have this kind of brain fog that happens. Right, right. And I think that's part of it too but I also there's this article that's in my saved uh, saved the items right now that I want to read and it's all about sort of zoom fatigue and how to avoid it but because everything is so everything is all technology now technology even if you aren't working from home and you are working out in the community you're still tapped in pretty heavy duty to this new technology overload and mm-hmm. I can't help but think that's affecting how people are are thinking and
0: feeling. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's quite, it's quite a lot. And I mean, yeah, there is um, uh, I'm not seeing Andre coming back yet, but I'm hoping that he will be. Maybe it's just an internet issue. Um, but yeah, I've been feeling very uh, burnt out as well. I've just been. Um, oh, he says uh, his computer crashed. Okay, so he'll be back soon. Uh, let's give him a couple minutes. Um, so, you know, uh, I've just been, uh, really tired of my job and I'm trying to look for something else to do. Cause I, my job is pretty much unsustainable, very alienating work, <laughs> uh, especially as a Marxist. I think once you are, once you start looking at some of these concepts and, and analyzing, um, analyzing, you know, workplaces through a Marxist lens, I think sometimes it can get even harder to yeah. do some, some kinds of jobs. Right. Um, it can get even harder when there's no room for organizing because I'm working remotely. So there's, you know, there's no, there's no, like, you don't even get to see your coworkers. You don't even get to see that. Right. So there's no like connection. So, um, anyway, uh, yep. He should be joining us very
2: soon. Workplaces must love that. You know, especially the, you know, those union busting type of workplaces are like, Oh good. We already have people separated. Yay. They're not going to (laughs) work union. (laughs) <laughs> right, right, right. But we will be doing more shows on how to organize a union in your workplace and how to keep your union organized if you have one already. So stay tuned because that's coming. Because there is yes. lots of ways you can use technology tools to do that. Like look at the gig the gig economy workers right now, Fedora workers. They're they went through like all kinds of incredible um adversity to connect with each other and try it well and then anyways other stuff happened but i always bring them up as an example because i do think there's there's going to be a we're going to see a trend in gig economy workers uh looking to organize right and i think that that's
0: yeah definitely awesome. i mean wh- what i do is not really gig economy work but i totally yeah that needs to be yeah. done that needs to happen the organization of gig gig workers definitely needs to happen especially considering how little money uh gig work makes right yeah, like if we see these um Oh, Andre's back.
2: And they Hello. Talk and say, Hey, Andre. Okay, awesome. you're back. <laughs> we Welcome back. You were because we were getting into more personal questions. We're <laughs> like,
1: oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> no, <gonna be laughs> no, 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 no. What was happening is I was I was spitting too much fire, and either my computer crashed or Ceasus was like, no, 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 cut him off, cut him off. <laughs> exactly it. Too much.
0: Oh, they they found Can our new stream. Shit.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Agent, okay. mcgee has been having a hard time with me lately. Who? <laughs> That's an agent McGillicuddy. That's, that's, that's the person I imagined to be my agent <laughs> <laughs> Been having a hard time with me lately.
0: It's a good Got thing it. to have an imagine, you know, the have that in your <laughs> imagination. So you can always kind of refer to them sometimes and be like, Hey, come on, man. Do you really want to yeah. be doing this? Shit? <laughs> All right. So anyway, we were, you were asking uh, Andre, a very good question. Moxie go ahead. Yeah.
2: Well, and it's, you know, and you can answer this however you like, you know, um, and you did sort of touch on a little bit of some personal stuff about how you came into sort of knowing about the roots of of African history, Pan-Africanism because of the school you got to go to, which was fantastic. So we know about that. <clears throat> but how did you actually come to, because you, you call yourself a communist, a Pan-Africanist communist, socialist. So how did you get to to the point that you're at today? when you also used to work in finance, <laughs> in, <laughs> in corporate, corporate finance. So yeah. how, how, how does that happen? Like, I, We're always really interested in people's stories, right? In, yep. in how they kind of come, come to kind of... Yeah, be, and I worked, uh, in the, uh, worked in the
1: financial industry, Like that, that much is true. Um, I got into it through selling mutual funds and then just kind of worked my way up. And I, I guess I had a couple of moments... Um, where I thought, okay, my time in this industry is limited. Um, one of those <laughs> was, one of those was, uh, when I kept getting mistaken for another, um, black employee in the workplace, oh. uh, <laughs> who I like, I like nothing oh. like him. You know, we're, uh, we're we're about the same height, but he was like three shades darker. Uh, he, was more, he, he was more. He was
2: like four feet tall, and you were like six feet. You know? No, 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 no. We
1: were close to the same height, but he was like much darker and, and much more muscular than me. So I was just like, I, I don't really understand how you could possibly mix this up. The other one was um, after the two thousand and eight financial crisis, there was this this narrative that began to coalesce, and that was that uh, you know the banks were forced not didn't choose to, but were forced. To give loans to people who didn't qualify for them, these so-called ninja loans—no, no, in, no, in, no, investments, no assets, no jobs, uh, or no, no, no investments, no job, no assets—that um, banks were forced to give loans to people that they otherwise might not have because of some sort of affirmative action policy, and not, you know, like there weren't predatory lenders uh, that were finding people that qualified for uh prime rate loans and then shopped them on the subprime loans anyway that ended up blowing up and when I hear other advisors and other planners, uh other fund people, fund representatives and so on saying these things, then I'm I'm just like you fucking assholes. You lying pieces of shit. How could like you know exactly what went down. You know that it was the responsibility of these yeah, these mortgage brokers, these real estate agents that basically like colluded together to get people in these like these shitty uh, mortgage situations. You know that the banks were making mad money off of this. You know that once uh, these uh, loans made their way into uh, financialization, like once once they began to become uh, distributed as as assets, uh, then they they were scattered throughout the system. Um, and all of them were just ticking time bombs. Like you know all that because we all read the same information. We're all in, we're all reading uh, the same same magazines, the same industry publications, and so on. And we know exactly what went down. But you want to keep lying to people because it makes you, a it makes you look good, and b everyone's going to believe that when you deflect the blame to minorities and poor people and immigrants. I uh, like everybody wants to believe that, so you know it's going to work. So, uh, after a while, it just began to really gnaw on me. That the industry that I was working in was was inherently predatory, um, and I was looking for an exit for a number of years. I'm like, oh wow, what am I going to do next? Like, I, I, you know, I was just a nobody. Like, I, I, I wanted to write about things, but I didn't really know how to pitch and how to write articles. Um, I wanted to participate in politics, but I had no idea what I was doing there either. I used to go to like these, um, uh, I guess, like monthly meetings for like liberal party supporters in Trinidad's Padina before that. Uh, writing was broken up into two and you know I would like hang out with people and ask like you know how can I contribute to the party and what can I do because I was, I was just looking for a way to like try to make the world better and I didn't know nothing about no communism I didn't really know much about socialism or any of that shit I just knew that I was like a leftist or left wing sort of progressive kind of person and I, I wanted to help out and again what I discovered there just made my skin crawl people who like Profess to want to help black people that want to help, um, you know, minorities that want to help marginalized people and then have no politics beyond wanting to or having the emotion of feeling empathy for Mm. the idea of actually, uh oh, people so you're gonna help black people, but are they gonna go into?
2: Yeah, you went a
1: little bit to see but uh, I think you're okay now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was just saying that, uh, you know, they want to help Black communities, but are they, are they ever actually going to, would I see them in my community? No. They want to help uh, Indigenous people. Um, are they are they ever actually going to, uh, you know, put their money where their mouth is and, uh, you know, engage in full reconciliation with Indigenous people? No, I mean they're still fighting court cases to prevent that from happening. So really, beyond the emotion of wanting to do nice things, what exists for you? I uh, and I, it shames me to say. Like I worked on Justin Trudeau's leadership campaign, and the experience of that, um, to, especially towards the end, really grossed me out. And I thought, yeah, 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 especially where. Um, they were talking about like marijuana legalization, ending carding and all sorts of other things that it seemed like they were like listening to what it was the community needed. And the thing is like if you're if you're like a a, a black person of Caribbean background in the Greater Toronto area the liberal party is pretty much your party. You know, yeah. like when you ask who you're
2: yeah, so multicultural of yeah. Trudeau too. Right. And there's like a real influx of, yeah, yeah. But it's true. Yeah. Sorry. Well, it,
1: it is, it is due to yeah. the multicultural, the changes to the immigration act in the 1970s and, and multicultural policy. It is very much due to that. So you even talk to people in the community and, and you ask them what they for. They vote for I say, oh, yeah yeah, vote for liberal people, you know, liberal party, a black people party. They think yeah. that like, that if you are like, from the Caribbean, if you're black or brown, uh, then it is your obligation to vote for the Liberal Party. Like There's there's just a, a, an intense ideological capture. Um, I think the NDP shares some of that cachet, and I think the, the Conservative Party is starting to make some inroads. But unfortunately, decades of anti-communist indoctrination has prevented us from reconnecting to our true socialist roots. You know, uh, uh, decolonial movements, independence movements, and uprisings all across the Caribbean and Africa... We're led by socialists. We're led by communists, you know. And some of our some of our heroes, people that we consider to be like our our giants, you know. We, we think about like Maurice Bishop and George Padmore. These these were these were these were socialists. These were communists. You know, we, we think about Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was a communist. You, you think about like you know Winnie Mandela, etc. Yeah, I, I guess you you know you could probably say that uh, you know Patrice, Patrice Lumumba wasn't a communist, but I mean he definitely was engaging in the language. He definitely wanted help from communists when his life was in danger. You know, so it's like it, it's a, a lot of this like uh, training and indoctrination has sort of like just drummed out of us the idea that we can ever engage in a broad socialist project. And I guess I I came towards socialism in my mid. Thirties, I would say, when I became completely disillusioned with the uh, the Liberal Party of Canada, but I also wasn't going to be a big supporter of the NDP. Now, granted, I do have people that I consider friends that are in the NDP, even though I give them a little love tap every now and again. You know, people like uh, I do like people like Matthew Green. You know, people like uh, you know Jared Nightwalker. Um, uh, there's like like a cadre of uh, like black. Um, NDP supporters, both at the provincial and federal level, you know, uh, Jill Andrews, and uh, there's just, there's just like, people that I consider like my kin, you know, and I'm trying to figure out how to properly say this, like, even though I don't necessarily support NDP policies, um, I do support my people. And for someone like, uh, you know, Dr. Jill Andrew, who is an an incredibly inspirational figure, uh, you know, was able to win, uh, surprisingly, a writing that I thought was going to go red, um, in in the uh, 2018 election. Like there's just there are people that are re- doing really inspiring work. I even think of, for example, like uh, Michael Coteau, who is a provincial Liberal in Ontario that I consider a friend, like I, I, I like Michael, our politics don't necessarily line up, but we you know we're brothers that care about the community. And even though he's liberal, I'll still like, listen, if Michael was to call me up and be like, Hey bro. So when this COVID thing is over, we're going to go, you know, go play some dominoes together. I'm like, Hey, yo, I'm down. I'm, <laughs> I'm doing this right. Cause I know he cares. Like he shows up and he actually cares about people, you know? So um, there are people that I really do get along with and, the, and that I support uh, if Dr. Selena, she's decided to run as an NDP person or even as liberal again, I would hundred percent support it, but I would really like to pull them over to the dark side. You know, <laughs> I really would like to, I really would like to make some new comrades. And
2: you know, and Andre, I think when it comes to electoral uh, politics, I mean, I got really disillusioned with them with, uh, just election politics. And I just want yep. wanted to find a political home. Right. But um, I think there would be a lot like to your point with all of these good community oriented people that give a shit about issues that their communities are facing. If it was if our election system was more about proportional representation, proportional voting, then we would have. We probably would have a lot more people not necessarily assigned to a party. But they would be running as, as these people that are community leaders and that kind of thing, right? So it's something that I think is important to do if we're still going to be living under this capitalist yeah. system.
1: And the thing is, like, no one, like, the Liberal Party, no, no party that's in power is ever going to institute proportional representation. I think that's a bit of a pipe dream. It, yeah. it has to be something that is, like, it's going to be a concession. Like, it's never going to be a, uh, a policy um, that somebody runs on wins on and then institutes It's going to be a concession from power to uh, people that are on the uprising you know so and I, I have a lot of respect for um, for people that have been pushing for literally decades uh, to institute uh, proportional representation. Um, but unfortunately I, I just the liberal party ran on it in two elections ago and they won and they scrapped it. Right, uh, and embarrassed, and embarrassed one, of the, embarrassed one of their newcomer MPs behind it as well. You know, just completely threw Mary under the bus. Right, so I, 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 I don't see them ever um, breaking with power in order to make that happen. I think it's going to end up being a matter of like people who are rising up against the established order of how politics is done in this country. About the, you know, the people rising up against first past the post, and it being. You know, uh, whichever party in power is just being like, holy shit, we better do something because we're not, we're not going to make it out of here in one piece if we don't give them what they want. And I think that that's something where um, is recognizable in the global south. I think it's recognizable, for example, like when you see these, uh, these, these, these protests in India. You know, these massive uprisings across South America, uprisings that were taking place in Chile, uprising in Bolivia, etc., where they were literally like detonating mountainside passes and blocking blockading roads and shutting down infrastructure until they got what they want, which was an election. You know, the, uh, the, the Janine Anya's regime, the, the, the coup regime was just putting off election time after time after time. And the people got fed up and said, no, fuck this. We're shutting down the country until you give us what we want. And I think that that's going to have to be the case where it comes to um, changing our electoral system is that um, until people are willing to, you know, literally blockade roads and blockade railways, I I wonder who might have some suggestions as to how to get that done. Can you think of anybody?
0: <laughs> I can think anybody, of uh...
1: anybody in this country who's blockaded roads and, yeah. and railways to yeah. force the government to cede to yeah. uh, the, the sovereignty of the people has that happened in the last year or two I don't know I'm yeah. just saying indigenous resistance has been
2: here since 1492 and, is and indigenous resistance
1: way. in this country has been the chief rock of shit just absolutely showing these white leftists, how to fuck up uh, the ruling class, has been happening for hundreds of years, and you would think that we could take a few, maybe just, like, have some conversations, uh, you know, just figure out, hey, how how can we help you? What is it that we can do as a party and as a people that are on your land? What can we do to help you in what it is that you seek to accomplish in your decolonial goals? And can you teach us like just just give us a few tips, little a few little pointers, because you know if we get outside of our books and get into I don't know direct action just a little bit, maybe we can help each other. You know that that's I don't think that a lot to ask. I don't think it's too think far that's, fetched.
0: No, I think that's exactly what's needed. That's exactly it.
2: I um, love comrades say get outside of your books. Not that books are books are very important, but I love it. I love hearing that. Like get outside your books and get in to the communities that you're get trying. Get to the
0: masses. To
2: like. Yes. I mean, yep. like, fuck, I mean, what are you doing if you're not doing that? You're not going to change anything if you're not doing that, right? Yeah. You're but- not
1: even thinking. You are thinking about thinking. Yeah. Just, and, and I, I actually, I pissed a lot of people off a couple of months ago when I said, like, you know, it's, really- it's good, it's good to do theory. It is good to have a theoretical foundation for your politics. But the question you have to ask yourself is, are we trying to build power or are we trying to build a book club? Yeah. What is the next step past theorizing? There has to be something else past that because telling people to read Lenin is not going to be enough. Telling people to read Marx is, uh, you know, big Bill Haywood said it best when he says, you know, I I've never read uh, Marx's capital, but I have the marks of capital all over my body. And that's true for everybody among the lumpen and the working class is that we all have our experiences with capitalism that has shaped and formed our worldview. We understand that there's something wrong with the state of the world, without theory we come to some very strange conclusions about how to rectify that so there does need to be a strong theoretical foundation but reading books is not enough you actually have to go out into the world and do something you can't just tell people to read fucking books
0: and look at and you books and- have to be applied the- to
2: something they
0: have yeah, to be who applied are you?
1: this
2: is why you know i think cuz Kieran and i talk a lot about kind of art yeah,
1: like, did, and- the, did the whatsweph and land defenders have to read a fucking book before they blocked the railroads <laughs> get out get out of here
2: no, exactly. It's all about historical materialism, right? So yeah. it, that's what it is in practice. But you, like, you and I often talk about, like, how how just as, you know, that's why we call this a lifestyle show, a socialist lifestyle show, because we do talk about what you do in your life that's sort of part of, of your socialist, communist, everyday being, right? And, mm-hmm. and art and writing is one of them, Right.
1: Well, I just I just sit around all I do is just sit around and read these books. See all these books behind me? That's all I do is I sit around and read <laughs> oh, That's it. I can do anything else.
2: <laughs> Speaking of books. Speaking of books. <laughs> I an article. No, um but we're so that kind of brings us into like the idea of writing for social change. And we did want to kind of mm-hmm. hit on that today too. Mm-hmm. And I know Kieran's also a writer, and you know, a lot of big uh you know iconic people throughout history or, uh, you know or, are, are like dubois was a massive writer or dubois sorry was a massive du writer du bois. Du, bois. du bois okay du, bois. du bois. that's right okay thank you um and uh like yeah. Lenin, like oh, there's so many iconic people that wrote and wrote and wrote and they wrote Mao. so well that they Mao's inspired writings
1: are so easy to understand. Mao, Mao? is, oh yeah. It's
2: about easy to understand accessible stuff,
0: right? Well, that's yeah. why my theory is that's why Mao and Stalin are hated the most is because their writings are the easiest to understand. They <laughs> are literally the easiest to understand. If you read that.
1: Lenin is, is good, but Lenin just like it seemed like all he was interested in doing was writing diss tracks. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: Lenin was like, really spicy too. He's always like, "Screw I you!" over there. I st- hate that
1: guy. The motherfucking crew. Yeah.
2: What the fuck is wrong people. with you? I love Lenin's writing. I, I do too. <laughs> Talking to you like at a table and, and like really hammering on the table or something like I, I kind of like You, you it. know, Lenin would be
0: like quote tweeting everybody, right? If he had Twitter, he would be like.
1: Well, like lennon has a part of a poster. Lenin would be. lennon would be a much more hated poster than me. Okay, l- Lenin would be <laughs> ducking on every fucking lib. L- with the, l- listen, nobody with a rose emoji in their handle would be safe from Lenin. Oh, I'm just telling god, you. No way. way. <laughs> no way. <laughs> oh
0: my god, that's hilarious. <laughs> but we wanted to ask you, uh, what are some of your, um, like, as a y'all writer. Think, y'all,
1: think Kelsky, y'all think Kelsky would have a rose emoji? I think so. <laughs> yes, for sure. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: he would probably write it in really fa- fancy font. To fancy. You
1: and yeah. <laughs> he would have a cursive font. Yes, <laughs> 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 he'd have a blue check.
0: Let him have like
1: 895,000 followers and no blue check.
0: That's right. That was- Lenin would make sure that he never got it.
1: Exactly.
2: He would keep getting censored and like suspended and you know in jail. He would. He would.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: Oh my god. Um, so you are a writer, and we wanted to talk to you. You know, you write for some pretty big uh, p- publications, and. Um, mm-hmm. What are, you know, we, I think personally that we need more writers, we need more communist writers, we need more socialist writers, we need more people who are telling stories, who are writing fiction and nonfiction, who are writing, you know, uh, who are getting published. Uh, I think that that's still not quite, we're not quite there yet in terms of that, like, uh, Mm -hmm. because mostly because the bourgeois press and the bourgeois, you know, publication publishing world just kind of uh blacklists you or silences you or you know whatever so uh what are what are your experiences as a writer uh writing about some of these topics i know you're i read one of your most i do read uh, many of your pieces of most recent one on mental health i thought was really well done too um so as a socialist i know you come across a lot of backlash right uh, when you when you write on these topics
1: uh, okay so it's a, I mean I do get uh, I do get backlash okay for example I wrote an article on bill c7 and that was explaining how the uh, inclusion of people um, whose uh, disability is mental illness including people in the ability to to uh, Uh, to solicit medically assisted death is a huge problem because if you're not providing for the material needs of people with disabilities, then who's to say that your decision to end your life is a lucid decision? And what happens with people um, with mental illnesses who have suicidal ideation is that oftentimes once you help them pass the initial period of suicidal ideation, it may come back. But, the, but acting on it and, and trying to end your life goes down precipitously um, the more help that you get. So what I was trying to explain was that, you know, at times where I experienced like severe anxiety attacks, like paralyzing anxiety attacks and these intense bouts of suicidal ideation had this provision that they are pl- trying to put into law been in place, then I probably wouldn't be alive. You know, and I have a lot to live for right now. So. Um a lot of people were really upset at th- about that they thought that I was I was trying to take away people's right to a dignified death whatever the fuck that means uh they, that that was trying to uh, that I I was uh, engaging in the same logic that people who are anti abortion engage in I even was told that like it was turf logic I'm not even really sure how that one
0: wait what makes
1: any yeah yeah somebody <laughs> told me that it's the same argument that that trans trans-exclu- or trans exclusive radical, radical feminists use I don't really understand that one but it's it,
2: it, like say things just
1: to like argue. I swear to God. That's <laughs> <laughs> whatever. I'm used to hearing like wild mischaracterizations of the things that I write, but it, it really did tick a lot of people off. And what's behind all of that is not, because I never argued against um, medically medical assistance and death. I never argued against MAID. What I did say was that if you are not providing the accommodations and not providing for the necessary financial accommodations, the physical accommodations, etc. Uh, in terms of like infrastructure, if you're not providing for these things to make sure that uh, people with disabilities have what they need, but you are providing the outlets for death and you've basically um, made the sole category available for medical assistance in death, people with disabilities, then you're, you're constructively dismissing them from life. Like you are immiserating people on the one hand and on the other hand, you're saying, okay, well, the option that's available to you and only you is that, you can you can die. And mm. so like, does it not make sense that this is basically the same thing as like a, a constructive dismissal from the workplace where you make the workplace environment so toxic that you
0: it's a bit it's a bit eugenic see.
1: People dismissal. It is. And I when I brought that up and I said it's the same logic it's the same logic that eugenics um, was patterned under the idea that people with disabilities live in a constant state of suffering. Now, granted, people do have like ailments that cause physical suffering. Like people have uh, pain disorders, joint disorders, etc., that do cause intense and acute bouts of physical pain. That is true. But there's this idea that to have a disability is itself suffering. And why, like, this is just no way to live. Why would you want to live this way? And there was, there were, you know, times where like senators were reading out accounts of people who had disabilities and saying, oh my goodness, this person has this particular disorder and, you know, they have to have assistance going to the bathroom and they have to like, make sure that uh, that somebody, like their, their sleep is monitored so they don't pass away while they sleep or they don't choke while they sleep or or that they have to have uh, some sort of like, uh, uh, whether it's a wheelchair or a bag or whatever, they're describing all of these symptoms, conditions, treatments, etc. And then following it up with, is this any way to live? And it's like, fuck you! You know, like just, just because...
2: But under capitalism, it's like yeah. if somebody's gonna contribute to the labor force to be exploited exactly. capitalists, then hey, it's no way to live, you know, because then yeah. you're taking away time from other labor people in the workforce in order to care for you. it's like, oh God, no way to live. And we certainly don't have any kind of healthcare diplomacy and wrap around supports within our healthcare. We might have, you know, public healthcare or you know. Of universal healthcare in Canada here, but we're not, we don't have like, I always, Kieran and I always talk about Cuba, about like the way their healthcare system works, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We need to like model off of Cuba and how they have done their healthcare. Doctors are living within the communities, doctors go and they support.
1: Yeah, they have a preemptive mode, they have an actual, they have healthcare that is uh, assistive and preemptive. Whereas we have, um, and I heard somebody else describe it this way. I, I forget the name of the person who described it, but uh, very recently, on Doctor Sharice Burden Stelly's Therese. podcast, the last open intellectual, described it as palliative healthcare. Our healthcare is after the fact. We don't treat. Um, we treat symptoms like after they've shown up, but we don't develop a model of healthcare that prevents these symptoms from showing up in the first place. A constructive, yeah. exactly. And in Cuba, they have the exact op- exact opposite of what we have. All of it is preemptive and designed to promote life. Ours is designed to ease suffering, if not end it. And I find it grotesque in a way that this is the conversation that we're having.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. It is absolutely a very different way of um, of uh, dealing with healthcare for sure. Um, uh, It's like they they you know the healthcare industry basically needs sick people to to make a profit, right? Yeah, that's the whole thing. So um, I think that's part of it. But I mean, I wanted to ask you, like, what would you say to somebody who is um, who wants to write, but is you know their politics are kind of keep putting them in a place where they can't.
1: I think I think a lot of people are afraid. I think a lot of people are afraid that if they pitch an article it's going to be rejected because of their politics. I, I don't think that's true. Um, now, granted, I didn't have communist politics when I began writing. I started writing around 2014. And so it's seven years later now. And I think that I've accomplished a lot of what I want to accomplish in the industry as somebody who's you know a, an op-ed writer. Like I'm, I'm an opinion writer. I'm not a reporter. I'm not an investigative reporter. I'm not, I'm not doing, I think, some of the more important kinds of journalism. But what I will say is that when I write things, people pay attention. You know, and I, I know that there's a lot of people like a lot of younger comrades who want to write things that people pay attention to and just kind of feel like, oh, I'm just going to be, you know, discarded. My, my, you know, uh, pitch will be thrown in the slush pile um, because nobody wants to publish uh, a socialist. And I don't think that's true. I, I like, I'd say the same thing where it comes to black writers is that like, it, it can't just be me. You know, it can't just be a few people in this country with like regular columns in large publications, like wow. please pitch more stuff. And I know that like a lot of stuff gets rejected, but like a, a shit ton of my pitches were and still are rejected. You know, I've, I've I actually in the last week have pitched like several times and I've been turned down after like long and hard conversations. But the fact is, You know, not everyone's going to want to publish what I have to publish. You know, I can't take that as a rejection of me personally. I just take it as a rejection of that particular idea at that particular time. Maybe it's just not the right time for it. One of the ones that I was supremely disappointed about was an article on Barrick. Um, the uh, the Barrett gold company. And basically like the amount of exploitation, just like the utter disaster of like, just this is Barrick is a human rights fucking nightmare. Right. And there's enough, you know, lawsuits. There's enough like headlines uh, in the paper that this is just not even in dispute. And I did like a lengthy essay about it. Um, I, I sourced my material really well and nobody would publish it uh, because this company has a, a very litigious history. And so it's it's either you publish something that's going to get an initial reaction and people nod their heads and say, oh, that's really good. And then you've got a lawsuit coming down the pipeline from Barrick, right? So does that mean that I never pitch anything again about any large company? Well, no. Like I, I published last year what I thought was a pretty good summation, or I've done this actually a couple of times, like a really good summation of Amazon and just how this company is fucking monstrous. Yeah. You know, you just, you just got to keep going. And we need more help out here. It, 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 there's only a few people that openly identify as socialist um, that do reporting, column writing, et cetera in this country. And there, I know that there's a lot of us that want to break it in, into the industry. I'm very happy to look over anybody's pitch, uh, help them tweak it and get it to the right person. But you just, you can't give up before you've even gotten started. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Thanks yeah. for that. No, I think those are some good words of encouragement. Like, Because it is a useful tool for change, right? Especially if you're able mm-hmm. to get it in more uh, kind of mainstream um, publications. And then you can can target a lot more people.
1: Well, the reason, one think- of the reasons I got into McLean's in the first place is because they published an article from Barbara Emile about uh, Michelle Obama having a problem with being called Barack's baby mama or something like that. And uh, it was just one of the most ignorant pieces of shit that I've ever read. As a matter of fact, I think that the magazine was, like, ashamed of themselves because they wouldn't even publish it digitally. Like, if you search for it online, you'll never find it. It was only in their print edition. And uh, I wrote this rebuttal to it. uh, And I I guess, like, my diss track was so good that they were like, hey, you want to write for us? (laughs) So, (laughs) not impossible. That's nice. That's
2: why you're crazy awesome to follow on Twitter too. So.
1: Oh my god. And also, so, how yeah. can
2: people find you on Twitter if they don't? If they because um we we usually oh, yeah. get um people watching after the live streams. So how could they find you on Twitter? Would
1: oh yeah, know? it's just my first and last name is Andre Demise. Okay. Yeah. Um.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say that the other thing um I I think about uh writing is that there's um. There's a lot of like self-publishing that's happening now too. Like you can actually mm-hmm. like publish a book and just there put it out there. There are still
1: there are still good publishers out there. One of like the publisher that is has been eternally patient with me and my continuously pushing back of um, my draft deadlines is Biblioasis. You know Biblioasis is a as a smaller but scrappy and well rewar- or well awarded upstart out of Windsor, Ontario. And if you have a solid idea. Like if you have a solid pitch and you can follow through on it, just pitch to, to Biblio Oasis. I mean, they do really good work. Uh, they, I mean, they've been patient as hell with me and, you know, and, and, uh, have like led me through the thickets on some of like the, the brick walls that I've run into trying to write this uh, piece of work that I'm trying to get out this year, you know? So I don't think that it's either, you know, like a Harper Collins or, uh, or a zero, books or reversal books or nothing else you know there's a lot there are a lot of options out there
0: yeah yeah definitely we we don't have to go with just the big the big three or big whatever four or three there are now
1: yeah Yeah, it doesn't have to be like you know it doesn't have to be just penguin or nothing Mm -hmm. i'm grateful that you that you gave
2: Um, Some of those resources to folks and as well as those books that you mentioned Kieran put them in Mm -hmm. the live stream chat So that people can resource those books Mm -hmm. Uh, And certainly we'll add some links and stuff after when that the video goes on to (laughs) YouTube In the meantime, we want to ask you here in front of all these people if you'll come back and maybe do a panel discussion on China
1: oh why are you gonna do this no. to me oh.
0: <laughs> oh i think he might be tired of talking about china <laughs>
1: yes, it's fine I, I will no i totally will you, you know what? It's so it's, it's,
2: yeah i have
1: i have friends on social media um who are in china and i get like i would say at least three to five messages a day uh, okay. from somebody saying thank you for speaking up and saying something and not from the same people, like from different people, like my inbox is like, I'm, I'm constantly having to like, you know, uh, f- like the messages that are asking me like, hey, would you like to come on such and such show or such and such panel? Or would you write, like to write such and such thing? I, I have to sift through all of the people who are saying thank you so much for speaking up about China. And of those, again, I say three to five people from China that'll do that. But there's probably about like 10, 12, close to 15 people just from anywhere that will write the exact same thing. And I just, you know, a lot of people think that, uh, or at least I I think people have gotten the impression that I'm one, I'm one of these like ideologues that thinks that China can do no bad or, or something like that. And it's not that the issue is that if you have a possible human rights abuse, and I'm willing to say that there are possible, like there are human rights abuses taking place, right? If, if that's the case, then show that on its own merits, and then tell us what it is that we need to do about that. Don't do this thing where you add all sorts of like sensationalistic and fault accounts around it. Don't garnish it with a bunch of bullshit and then not tell us what happens next. Cause what These all are you're doing serious is
0: allegations. These are serious fucking allegations,
1: very serious allegations. And if you're taking it serious, if you're taking it seriously, if in the, if in parliament you're voting 266 to nil, that you're going to charge China with genocide, then you have a responsibility to do something about that. So what are you going to do about that? Oh, we're just going to charge them with genocide. Okay. So what happens? Is there going to be an investigation? Like what? What, what do we? What do we? What do we do about it? like? No. What happens is Michael Chong floats the idea that oh well, what we need to do is boycott companies that uh that that employ forced labor um of Uyghur people, and we're going to have targeted Magnitsky Magnitsky Act sanctions against specific. Chinese officials. It's like, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. Like, the fucking
2: yeah. hypocrisy of the West mm-hmm. who are genocidal states <laughs> calling China genocidal I'm just like, come on. Like, this is- like When are we going to
0: charge Canada with genocide? Yeah. When are we going to charge Canada with genocide? Where are those 266 MPs Even- when it comes to Canada?
1: Of course, of course, they're, no- they're nowhere to be found. But all this, I mean, w- what a lot of this boils down to is Essentially, like destabilizing a specific region that has strategic importance to the West um, and also trying to foment a color revolution. And we know this is true Mm -hmm. because the information is right there in front of our faces. People like people like fucking read. Right. So that's what it is that I've been saying this entire time. And people get really mad at me for saying that because I'm not taking it back. Like I'm not saying I'm wrong because I'm not. Like I, I've I've read as many sources as have been put in front of me, and I see a I see a lot of connective tissue between those sources, and I don't like what I see. So if you don't like me saying something about it, then fuck off. I don't I don't care. So uh, am I am I like tired of this conversation? I'm just tired of people throwing the same links and articles in front of me that I've already read. I've already like tracked down the sources for, and I've already seen that there are some massive discrepancies, and that seems to be. Uh, uh, taking the kernel of very real and potentially more human rights abuses and dressing it up with a bunch of uh, you know ideological bullshit that's going to make us responsible for in- engaging in group punishment against very vulnerable against a very vulnerable minority and calling it humanitarianism. I don't like that.
0: And then uh, all the racism that it fuels here too, uh-huh. right? All the racism no. that gets uh, generated out of these imperialist uh, talking
1: points. It's just absolutely wild to me that people are using uh, supposed compassion for um, for Muslim people abroad to be racist against Chinese people at home. I don't know if you saw the, uh, there was like a sign um, on this bar outside of London, Ontario, uh, where it said that, uh, you know, we don't hate Chinese people, we just hate the coronavirus and genocide against Uyghur people. And it's like, I, I, really? Is that is that why? Do you really not hate Chinese people? Because I'm really getting like some hate vibes off of that that sign. And it was it was on a bar. It's just on some random bar yeah. in one of the most racist cities in this country. So it's like you just want to feel good about your reasons for your your xenophobia and your xenomisia. Like you want to feel good about your reasons for not liking Chinese people. And this provides a very good, uh very good dressing for that.
0: Totally. Well, I have a lot to say about the Sinophobia and China and everything, but we are actually going to be holding a panel discussion. Andre, you're welcome to join us. Uh, we're also, <laughs> we are also going to have a couple of other guests. Uh, this is going to be a week from today. We're having a special show. Usually we go every two weeks, but we're going to have mm-hmm. another one in one week, another mm-hmm. uh, episode of Red Life Podcast. And uh, yeah, so it's going to be specifically on China and on Xinjiang. Uh, so it's going to be a very interesting discussion. I'm sure we'll get lots of hate and probably <laughs> lots of love. The,
2: cyber cold, war, the cyber, cyber cold war on China.
0: Yeah, so
2: definitely a lot of aspects to that. Um, um,
0: I think you called it Internet imperialism, which I, I like that yeah. term. I mean, I don't like the concept, but I, I think that's an apt term. Because, uh, you know, what's happening is that a lot of people, their accounts are being uh, uh, targeted. their account You know, if, if you're speaking up against uh, the uh, whether it's China, whether what the U.S. is doing in Syria, all kinds of stuff. I mean, th- this is a much larger discussion. But if you are an anti-imperialist, if you are a principled anti-imperialist, if you're you going to get targeted.
1: If you search on Google for information on what's happening in China, it'll be completely different than if you search on, say, DuckDuckGo. Uh, yeah. there was a there was a document that somebody posted to Google Docs that had a bunch of links you know with uh, yeah, everything from like challenging to debunking of um, sort of like the State Department talking points about China and every time that it's posted Google Docs will strike it down and these are simple links to YouTube like it's it's a Google doc with links to Google platforms like YouTube. Uh, CGTN and global times, for example, but also to articles in global times in Xinhua.net, et cetera, et cetera, even to the Chinese government website itself. Every time somebody posted in Google docs, it gets struck down. So it had to be hosted on qq.com, which is a a Chinese sort of uh, a Google website.
0: The person who runs that is one of our guests. The person who runs that. yeah. Yeah. The curator of that come on, particular...
2: Come on, you got to come back even for
1: half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay.
0: Yeah, she'll be joining us along yeah. with uh, Omar Latif, who is one of our comrades who actually went to Xinjiang a year and a half yep. ago. Um, so we're going to have some, a very lively, interesting discussion. Please join us in a week uh, from times. today on that. And Andre, you'll be back for
1: that. Yeah, I'll be back. Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right, we'd like to hear that. I hope okay. you had a, I hope you had a good time. There's still like so much I want to ask about all this stuff that we talked about, but um, I think it's an ongoing discussion. Uh, before we go, can you tell us, as people who are not African, who are not, Af- you know, who are not uh, of African descent, not. Any time recently, um, <laughs> uh, as you know, we know we are all technically, theoretically, if you go far back enough, of African descent. But um, what would you say? What are some ways that we can be good allies, you know, to uh, uh, and 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 uphold Pan Africanist thought without being, you know, really shitty kind of.
1: In, ain't no allies, allies, only comrades. There's no allies. Comrades. There's only comrades. comrades. I, don't believe, yeah. I don't believe in allyship. I believe in. I good, believe in comrades that's a good point. Oh, I love it. Oh No, what I would say is that uh I I recommend uh reading a few books. I recommend like being in conversation with Pan Africans. So if you, for example, follow Black Alliance for Peace, if you read the Black Agenda Report with like Margaret Kimberly and Ajamu Baraka, uh if you uh follow the the, the organization actually that um Kwame Ture was mentioned to have been a part of in uh, that that snippet that we watched earlier. The All African People's Revolutionary Party. They haven't gone anywhere. As a matter of fact, I applied to be a member of the All African People's Revolutionary Party. I'm going through the vetting process myself to be a part of uh, that organization. So, what I would say is, um, if you go to like Black Alliance for, if you go search for Black Alliance for Peace and go to their website, or if you go to the All African People's Revolutionary Party and and uh, um, check out their site and how to join and so forth, they both have like. Um, you know, membership uh, availability for people of African descent, but they also have um, availability for people that are supporters of these movements. So, it, you know, its I would say it's not for me to say, go to these organizations, find an organization that supports Pan-Africanism, supports Pan-African nationalism um, and ask them, how can I be of help? How can I be of service?
0: That's a great answer. Awesome. All right. Cool. Moxie, any last thoughts? Well,
2: yeah, but I mean, it's okay. I you know, like, <laughs> the last thought. But, you know, this was fantastic. I learned yes. so much. And that's one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast because every single time I walk away and I feel like really inspired to go out and learn more. So thank you so much. It was an honor to have you and uh, and to share your time with us and with our viewers. So thank you so much, Andre. Thank yes. You.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Andre. We will love to have you back. It was a great conversation. You have great energy and a great microphone. You sound awesome. Yeah. So well, thank you. Yeah. You're thank nice. you.
1: Well, I spent a lot of money on it, so I hope so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. It was
0: worth it. Money well spent. All <laughs> right. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Right, Please remember everybody. to next Saturday. remember next Saturday. Yes, and remember to subscribe to the channel. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. thanks for listening to this episode of red life podcast please subscribe if you haven't already done so on spotify apple podcast stitcher or wherever else you listen to podcasts follow us on social media at red life podcast and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash red life podcast until next time take care of yourself and take care of each other